In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Thank God, last week we finished um, the book of Romans. Um, God willing, today we're going to study a chapter that's only, or a book that's only one chapter, uh, which is the book of Second uh, John. So, who is the author of Second John? John. Say, which John? John the Beloved. Okay, John the Beloved, whose brother is who? James. Okay, um, so... St. John the Beloved, he wrote this epistle while he was in Ephesus, and he doesn't mention himself by name. You know, we know um, a lot of the, or almost all of the epistles of St. Paul. Um, Paul always, he introduces the epistle by saying that he is the author. It's actually the very first word of every single epistle except Hebrews is the word Paul, um, because he introduces himself as the author. Um, John's style is he doesn't introduce himself, actually, even in his gospel, he doesn't mention himself in the in the gospel, um, so this is kind of consistent with that. But he only refers to himself as the elder. Okay, he refers to himself as the elder. Um, it's like I said, it's only one chapter, um, and it's a Catholic epistle. Catholic epistle. Uh, the word Catholic meaning universal. So it is an epistle that is written to the church and not necessarily to a specific congregation or to a specific person but kind of a general letter that is written for the edification of all of the believers. Um, who is it addressed to? Okay, so um, in the very first verse, okay, um, it is addressed to the elect lady and her children, right? So he introduces himself as the elder, and he is writing to the elect lady and her children. So there have been different interpretations as to who is this elect lady, okay? St. Jerome, he believes that she is a real person, a real woman that he is writing to, okay? Um, and whom, whom uh, she didn't write, he didn't write her name, okay? But he's writing to a real person. Um, and maybe the reason that he didn't write her name is because he didn't want to, like, attract attention to her or maybe negative attention from the Romans to her. So instead of mentioning her name, which would then kind of um, maybe at attract that negative attention. He just left it as the elect lady with the understanding that she knew who it was that, 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 that this letter was written to. So that's one opinion, St. Jerome's opinion. Um, some people say that it was written to a lady named Eclecta. Uh, ec yeah, Eclecta. Okay? And Eclecta means to the, to the chosen. And we'll see that, that that word, that eclecta, that actually appears is a Greek word which, um, uh, um, which, which is translated elect, okay? So instead of, so, so this interpretation is the word elect, when we say the elect lady, elect is actually the name of the woman, okay? To the lady whose name is elect or eclecta, okay, in Greek. Um, other people believe that, her name, actually, it was written to a specific woman whose name was Kireya, um, which is the Greek word that was translated lady. So in our translation, like in the New King James, where it says um, the elect lady, one interpretation is the word elect, eklekta, is the name of the woman. Another uh, uh, interpretation is that the word lady, which is Kireya in the Greek, is actually the name of the woman. Okay? So there are two different uh, opinions there for who she is specifically. Um but there is a fourth group, okay, that believes that Kireya is a symbol of the church or of like a specific congregation or a specific church in a specific area, 
okay, because she is the chosen bride of Christ. She is elect of Christ. Um, and this group, they interpret um, in, in verse 13, um, St. John mentions the children of your elect sister, so like in a, in a greeting. He's mentioning the children of your elect sister. So this being what? The children of this church. Okay, so the, the, the children of the church as opposed to literal children. Okay, um, There are a lot of reasons why it is likely that this is the correct interpretation. That St. John is writing to uh, a, a church and he is saying about, uh, referring to her as the elect lady um, for several reasons. Um, in the original Greek, in, in some of the verses in Greek, they all address the audience in a plural form. So although this could be referring to a specific woman and her children, but it seems more likely that it's referring to a group of people like a congregation. Um, St. Paul and St. John, they are um, commonly personify the church as a woman in other epistles. So for example, in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, um, St. Paul says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the idea that the church is personified as a woman is something that was very common and in the writings of the apostles as well. So it um, makes more sense that, or, or, or it's, it's um, in agreement with the idea that this elect lady could be referring to um, a church. Um, also, in that same verse 13, the, the where it says, the children of your elect sister greet you, if, if St. John was writing to a specific woman, and he said to her, the children of your elect sister greet you, that really means that th there are your nephews and nieces that are greeting you, okay? The children of your sister, okay? And it, again, it, it seems to make more sense in the context that it's one congregation kind of greeting to another, rather than it being a literal um, aunt or uncle or, 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 or nephew or niece that is like doing, like, like that he is mentioning here. What is the background of this epistle? Okay, so there were many, many false teachings, t false teachers at the time. Um, we have been talking about one group um, at, at length in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians before that, which are the Judaizers. Um, and these were... Uh, people who did not observe the Jewish rituals, uh, or, or sorry, th those Jews who believed that Gentiles who did not observe the Jewish rituals cannot be Christian. Okay? So that's, again, what they believed, what we've been discussing at length. The, the people who believed that you must essentially practice the Jewish faith, the Jewish rituals, the Jewish rites, the circumcision, and the feasts and fasts and so on in order to be Christian. So that was one category of false teaching that was prevalent at the time. A second kind of category of false teachers at the time were false apostles. These were people claiming to have the knowledge of God and, and, and arguing against St. Paul and criticizing him for his teaching and claiming that they were actually the authentic uh, uh, like teachers and claiming that their teaching was kind of superior to the teaching of St. Paul. And this is one of the reasons why we see in many of the epistles um, that we have studied that St. Paul is defending himself. Right, he's he's speaking about his credentials as a teacher, his credentials as an apostle. He's saying that the teachings he is teaching are not his own words, but the words of God, the message of God that is being delivered to the church. 
um, in order to defend against this idea that he is not a true apostle and to fight against these other false apostles, these people who are claiming apostleship or claiming that they were speaking the word of God, they were actually speaking their own words or having other motives like wanting to have kind of uh, authority in the church and, and, and to have a following and disciples and so on. Another group of false teachers that were in the church at a time at the time was the group that we call the Gnostics. Okay, the group Gnostics comes from the word gnosis in Greek, which means knowledge. These this group, the Gnostics, they believed that they had some very special secret knowledge about the about God that had been revealed to them alone, and that they were the only ones that knew this knowledge. And for instance, they believe that Judas was actually like the prophet of God and not Christ. Okay? They also believed that the physical world, anything that is material and physical, was evil. Just the, the nature of the physical itself is evil. So they believe that the body is evil. We don't believe this. You know? We believe that the body God created for good, it has been corrupted right when we refer to the flesh or the fleshly lust it has been corrupted but it doesn't mean that its essence is corrupt god created it good and not evil okay so they believed that um that 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 this knowledge okay was um or this gnosis um was given to them okay um and their goal was to escape the 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 material world okay um through knowledge okay so this revealed knowledge that they received um, would would help them to escape this material world another type of false teaching that existed existed at the time was called docetism okay um, and this is also part of what the, the Gnostics believed as well which is the belief that the physical body of Jesus was an illusion right he did not actually have a physical body because again the physical body was um, was was evil right so he, he he didn't have one it was like an illusion he was an apparition okay so um at his crucifixion it only seemed like jesus was having a physical body and physically dying but in reality he was incorporeal and just purely spirit and he did not physically die this was again another philosophy another religion belief system at the time that the ch the church was kind of in the midst of this philosophy okay so one of the main focuses of the book of second john was to address these false teachings um that didn't believe that christ truly came in the flesh and he speaks about this directly okay in the first um four verses the word truth appears five times because he wants to emphasize very much the importance of truth and this is something that maybe for us in our society today um, has been lost you know our society doesn't really focus so much on truth doesn't focus so much on what is actually true it focuses on what's convenient or what's comfortable or what's beneficial to me you know I can I can create a narrative out of anything and I can try to um, kind of take a take a, a, a set of events that have happened and and conclude anything I want from it you know, I can find a way to twist it in a way and present it in a way that is not really the truth because I don't want to accept whatever the truth is. I want to, um, I, I, you know, kind of conform these events and this truth to my own beliefs. And so I find a way to interpret it, to justify it, to excuse it, 
and so on. And so one of the very important things about our Christian faith and our worldview is the existence of an absolute truth who is God and that everything has a truth. Everything has a truth and a falsehood. Like you can evaluate the truth value of something. You can say that this actually happened or this is true or you can say this is false. That doesn't mean that there's going to be different opinions about things, right? This is not discounting the idea that different people have different opinions. But we are not even, in our society, we are not even agreeing to the facts themselves. We're not even, like, you can have an opinion about what should be done. You should, you could have a different opinion about how to proceed. You know, you could have an opinion about what kind of decisions to make. But at the very fundamental level, People nowadays don't even agree on what is the truth, what actually happened, what are the facts. There's really no concept of facts anymore, if you want to put it that way. Um, there's no such thing as a fact. Everything is an opinion. Everything is interpreted. Um, so I in, in the faith, we, we very much care about the truth, and, and, and we believe that Christ is the truth, and we try to live according to how he has called us to live. Um, Finally, um, uh, this epistle was written sometime between 80 and 100 A.D. is what is typically um, typically believed for its date of authorship. Okay. So St. John, he starts, the elder, remember he refers to himself as the elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Okay. Um, the word elder in Greek is pres presbyter. Presbyter is what is priest. Okay, so the word elder here is translated. And this is a, a Protestant translation of the Bible that we are reading. Um, and uh, the idea of priesthood is something that is not accepted by many of the Protestant churches. Whenever they, they read the word presbyter, oftentimes it is translated elder. Okay, but the word elder here means priest. So he's referring to himself as priest, and there is a like a connotation here that he is also elderly, like he is he is uh, a priest who is an elder and is of authority, right? So it it imply it could mean here uh, the word presbyter could mean priest or it could mean bishop, um, but someone who of the clerical rank. Saint John is expressing his love for the church. So assuming I'm going to, uh, you know, for the purposes of this Bible study, we're going to adopt the view that he is, he is addressing um, a church who is uh, personified by this elect lady. Okay. Um, so St. John here, he's expressing his love for the church and his love is based on truth. And the love of the Holy Spirit is common among all those that love the truth. So, so all of us who... Um, as Orthodox Christians, whether we live in the United States and we speak English or whether we live in other countries or whatever cultures we are or, or anything, we all have something in common, which is the truth of the faith. So even though, you know, maybe there are a lot of things that are different about different believers, and yet there is one common thing, which is the love of the Holy Spirit, which is the love of the truth, which is the foundation um, of truth. So all Christians share this because we are one in Christ. And our oneness in Christ is not based on cultural things. It is not based on language. It, it is based on our membership in the body of Christ, the union that we have with one another through Christ. We have the same faith. We have the same values. And we all regard one another as members of the body. And this is what unites us together. And this is why the idea of being united in one body is so important. Because when the body is strong, it is resilient against attack, right? 
when the body is strong, it is resilient against attack. Think of it like a disease. It's coming to attack the body, right? If the body is strong, it'll easily thwart the disease. It'll easily protect itself against the disease. But if the body is weak, it's very easily will become sick, okay? So part of our faith is not, it's not just personal in the sense that, yeah, well, I can pray on my own. I can read the Bible on my own. I can even come and take, you know, communion and practice the sacraments. And then, I, you know, I have no connection with the rest of the body other than my own kind of like personal spirituality. So it's important for us as the church to realize that this is not the way that the church had been from the beginning. There was even when you read in Acts chapter 2, it, it paints a picture of how the church was one and how they prayed together and how they had fellowship together and how they served together and how they fasted together and how they gave up all of their possessions in order to serve one another and so on. There was a huge, very powerful, very strong connection between the believers. And for that reason, the church was strong. It was resilient to persecution. Even we read about how, when we were reading in Romans, about how when the uh, Christians in Israel, in Jerusalem, were being persecuted, St. Paul was collecting donations from the Greeks, the Greek Christians, in order to send it to and to deliver it to the persecuted Christians in Israel. So there was a, a love and a, and a care, even for people that I had never met before, that I don't know, that I will never meet, you know, and, and, and there was there was a self-sacrifice. So it's important for us to have this amongst ourselves and to, you know, create this environment and this culture, this desire for fellowship with one another, desire to pray for one another, desire to encourage and to help and to sacrifice of myself for one another. This is a big part of being a part of the church, right? The, the spirituality is not an individual spirituality. It is not just I am, I am doing my thing on my own and my salvation and mine and mine and mine. Even when you think about evangelism, what is evangelism? Evangelism is saying we are not even satisfied with the fellowship that is within our church. We are not even satisfied with what is in the body of Christ. But we want to go even beyond this and to bring others also into the body. So we have a responsibility as Orthodox Christians to engage with one another, right? To engage with one another and to engage even with the people who are outside of the church. This is part of the mission of the church is to bring as many people into the fullness of the body of Christ, to the bride of Christ, uh, in, 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 as much as we can. Yes. This might be a bit of a loaded question, but um, on the point of evangelism, you know, as as the Oriental Orthodox Church in America, we're we're largely uh, we're largely uh, you know uh, immigrant parishes. Um, but what what is the church's opinion on that fact? Should we should we perceive ourselves first uh, as this immigrant community, this set of Im immigrant communities, or as the you know the Coptic or the Syriac? the Indian churches in, in America, you know, called to evangelize, to serve the American people. But, you know, like, it, it's like there's two, there's two communities, two people that you have to serve then, the American people and then the, the immigrant people who came, right? But then the immigrant people, at least in my communities, uh, often tend to themselves, right? And uh, don't see the need to go outside. So how should we perceive ourselves, ideally? Uh, that's a very good question. 
So on the one hand, if you look at the example of the apostles, and I'm not trying to say that any of us will be able to do what they did, but if you look at what they actually did, the apostles were immigrants, if you want to call them that, because they went into a country that was completely foreign to them, and they didn't even have any family or any support, and completely by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, they were able to establish churches because they were so singularly focused on that they are apostles. Like, that is their calling, right? Their calling, not anything else, not, not a, some other career, not making money, not settling down, not doing anything, but actually giving their life for Christ. This was their calling to the very end, and they all did it amazingly, right? So on the one hand, the idea that a person is traveling to another place, it doesn't prevent it. It doesn't prevent them from being able to do that. It requires them to have this principle. You know, like, we in the Orthodox Church, we tend to think of, like, there are certain priorities, right? So, for instance, holiness is a priority. Like, we know that God wants us to be holy. So, that's why we want to confess. That's why we want to, you know, practice virtue. That's why, like, we try to keep ourselves from sin. And even a person who's an immigrant, who's, you know, obviously comes and has difficulty because they're struggling in many ways, still, if you ask them, well, as you are an immigrant, should you still be holy? They're going to say yes. And as an immigrant, should you still attend liturgy and take communion? They're going to say yes. And as an immigrant, you know, should you teach your children the faith? They're going to say yes. So as an immigrant, should you practice evangelism? They're going to say no. W well, why? If, if, like, where did we get the idea that the evangelism was less, lesser of a commandment than the others? That's kind of more of in our mind. Now, at the same time, I want to have mercy, okay? Because those people who are coming in from other places, for one, they cannot relate to the culture of the place they come. Maybe they don't speak the language of the place they come. Maybe their whole focus is how to survive because maybe their education that they have is not accepted here. Maybe they have to do, like, they go through so much hardship as brand new immigrants, maybe not even understanding the language and so on coming here. So it's understandable why many of them like, are unable to perform that mission of evangelism straight off the bat, right? But there's a difference between acknowledging the real obstacles of doing it versus having the mindset that it's not important to be done or it's not my responsibility to be done. Like I can come and say it's important and I should be doing it and I want to do it, but I'm failing at it because I have such and such and such. Right. I can understand such an argument, but not the kind that says, well, all I'm going to focus on or what really God wants me to do or my only goal is to just focus on my own family and my own church and that's it. Right. If we put ourselves in such a situation, you know, like I always use the example of like China. So like if I go to China, you know, if me and my family move to China, the first thing I'm going to do is try to find a church that prays in English, not a church that prays in Chinese. I'm not going to immediately start to evangelize the Chinese people. I'm going to try to just figure out my own life by and large, right? Because it's hard for me to engage and integrate with the community, even on a social level or on a work level, let alone a spiritual level, which is hard enough. So on the one hand, yes, we are all called for it. On the other hand, there are real challenges for everyone to do it. So I would say that to a large extent, especially for the people who come to the, you know, the, the, like who are immigrants, new immigrants. You know, sometimes we, 
Maybe people consider themselves immigrants even after having lived in the country for 30 years. Right? They're not immigrants anymore, right? So we use maybe that excuse, or some people maybe use that excuse um, to, to kind of not do those uncomfortable things, which is trying to make the church more welcoming to people and to evangelize to people and so on. But let's say for the new immigrants, one of the greatest things they can do, which is a type of indirect evangelism, is raising their children in the faith, but then raising their children to understand the importance of evangelism so that they will be able to do it, right? Like I always say, at least in the Coptic church, even if many of the older generations of the Coptic people, they were not necessarily evangelizing directly, but they raised the generation of children that grew up in the church that had the faith and have the culture to be able to do it more effectively. So, so I guess the short answer is, None of us are exempt from what God commands us to do. But it doesn't mean that we're all equally successful or equally able to do it. So we do our part in it. What is it that is within my ability to do? I, I try to do. But I shouldn't ever discount it and say, you know what, well, this isn't for me. You know, and I, again, I shouldn't think myself perpetually an immigrant forever. When we read like things that say the church or the believers, how do we do we read that as just the Orthodox people or do we read that as like Christian people in general? In the Bible or uh, when you I read read where? Like in this. Well, here there's only there's there aren't there aren't denominations, right? Like there's only the church. The church was the church and that's it. So there's no when you read believers, there's no distinction between anything like that could be jewish believers that could be gentile believers you know um that could be people who are brand new converts there could be people who have been in the faith for a long time already um so yeah i mean in, in the i mean maybe nowadays it's hard for us to imagine a time where there was just the church and that was it and everybody had the same faith and there was no differences right uh, compared to kind of the environment that we're in now. But yeah, at the time, it applied to every Christian. Hmm. So he, he says what? Um, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. And this is a very kind of interesting thing he said the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever okay because the truth is with us and the truth does not change the truth that was with the church at the time that saint john wrote this is the same truth that abides in us and will be with us forever up until today it is the same truth okay this is the reason why the faith of the church doesn't change because god is the same and the faith is the same also because the truth is not man-made you know the truth is not man-made the maybe the way we um explain the truth can change you know like nowadays you can explain the truth with the youtube video right whereas back then they didn't have youtube they only had myspace okay <laughs> they had they didn't have the tools right they didn't have the tools that we have okay so the way that the truth is explained can change the techniques that we use can change right but what we are teaching itself is the same 
okay? Because it is not an invention, it is not a fabrication, it is not changed to be more convenient or more popular, it is not based on what we would prefer, it is not based on what supposed science supposedly has discovered, because it doesn't change, it is the truth. And as it was delivered, so it is was believed, and so we believe it even till now. Um, so here, St. John, he is establishing the firmness and the immutability of the truth by saying it will be with them forever. Saying you are part of something that lasts forever. You know? When you're a part of something that lasts forever, the way that you treat it and the way you feel about it is different than if you feel like you are a part of something that is fading away or something that has the possibility of dissolving. You know? Like once one person gets married, believing that, this marriage is going to last until they die. And that absolutely nothing is going to cause them to break this marriage until death. And this is a commitment that they make in their own mind. And this is the belief that they have. The way they are going to act in that marriage is very different than a person who believes that this marriage could end at any time whenever I desire it. Or maybe from the other person could also end it at any time whenever they desire it. The way we act toward it is different. The way that we sacrifice for it is different. The way that we forgive is different. The way that we, you know, the way that we endure and have patience and have mercy is different in both those scenarios. Also here, when we believe that the truth is with us forever and the church is forever and that we are a part of something that is eternal, the way that we deal with it is different than if we believe the church is temporary. For I believe that the beliefs that the church is proclaiming today is one thing, but next year it's going to be something different. That brings no stability, right? There's no stability. There's no there's no sense of 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 con continuity and, and like continuing from before till now. It also, if the church is going to keep changing, it loses credibility. Well, why are you changing? If you if 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 you keep changing, then whatever it is that you believe today, why should I bother? Something you know, church is asking me to to do something difficult, right? Like, wh why should I bother doing it if you know next year? Um, you're going to come and say, no, that was all wrong. You know, we, we didn't understand. <coughs> so he's expressing, you know, confidence in the church. He's expressing confidence in their faith that they will continue to abide in the church and in the truth and not turn away from the true teachings of Christ. Remember, the, 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 the main theme of this is speaking against the false teaching. So he's trying to tell them the truth that you received will always be the truth. And if anyone comes against this truth with false teaching, do not believe the false teaching. The, the truth will abide. The truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God, the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Okay? So, St. John is identifying that both God the Father and God the Son are the sources of grace, mercy, and love. Because he says grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace are coming from both the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And from God we are receiving this peace, right? And this grace. Like grace is what? Grace is unmerited favor. It is a blessing that God gives to us that is undeserved. It is not something we have earned. It's not something that we have done something for. God is good to us even when we are not good. Okay? This is the divine love that God demonstrates to us 
to make us see his love, that he gives us what we do not deserve, that we have done nothing to earn, and yet he gives. Mercy is what forgives when we fail, right? So grace is just an unmerited gift. Mercy is the response to failure. Whenever I fail, God shows mercy. He does not give me as I deserve, right? So in both cases, God, grace is God is giving me what I don't deserve, and mercy is God doesn't give me what I do deserve, which is some kind of a punishment or some kind of negative consequence. And peace, peace is what gives us kind of a sense of serenity, keeps us from worry and from anxiety, and we will only experience these gifts from God if what? We live in truth and love, okay? If we abide in God, we live in truth and love, we will experience grace, mercy, and peace. Truth is the knowledge of God, and love is the practice of truth, right? Truth is the knowledge of God, and love is the practice of that truth, right? It is a putting into action of the truth. This is why I cannot say that I have truth, but I don't have love, because if I have truth, then I would put it into practice. And I cannot say that I have love without truth, because love without truth is twisted. It is not, it is not a pure and godly love. It is, it is what the world defines to be love that is barren of truth, that is filled of all kinds of lies. It's full of all kinds of deception and falsehoods under the guise of love. The love we are talking about here is the, the godly love, the love that comes from God. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. Okay? So again, we are, we are saying here that St. John is speaking about the children which are the members of the church. Okay? Like the believers are the ones that are walking in truth. And St. John rejoiced when he saw the people following the commandment of God. Okay? This something brought joy to his heart. Maybe even in our time now, when we see someone who's actually living according to the faith, and brings us joy because the majority of the examples that we see in the world are people that are living according to the world system and not according to God's system. When we see someone actually living according to the truth, it brings us great joy, okay? And so we should rejoice in the truth. Also, we should feel grieved and saddened over people who have left the truth or are not living according to the truth. So here he is encouraging the people by saying to them that I am joyful that you are abiding in the truth, obeying the truth, following the truth, because he is encouraging them again against accepting and tolerating the false teachings that we have discussed. Okay? Um, and now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which you have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Okay? So he is saying that he is not writing a new commandment. He is not giving a new commandment. But that commandment which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Okay? And the commandment is the same because God is the same. In Hebrews 13:8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But then we have to question, okay, because St. John also wrote in his gospel, he wrote this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, 
as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why is it that Christ, in written in the Gospel of John, John chapter 13, why is he saying, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another? Whereas here, St. John is saying, what, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which you have had from the beginning, that we love one another. How can we understand these two different um, verses? Um, because when Christ said it, it wasn't a new commandment of like, like it was always in the spirit of the law and all the commandments that he had given them. So it was just like a new, new in the sense that it was the first time he was saying it in the letter. Um, but that law was always from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. So when Christ was speaking to the people and he said, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right. And, 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 and that this is the, the summation of all the law and the prophets. So the, the, all of the commandments that were given in the Old Testament essentially boil down to these two things. is to love God and to love your neighbor. So when Christ is saying a new commandment I give to you, what is the new commandment? He is, he is elevating the standard of love to actually require of the people and call the people to live according to this true love that in the Old Testament they were unable to live. Because in the Old Testament, you know, the commandment was what? Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And this was what was accepted in the Old Testament. But it wasn't accepted because that is the standard of God. It was accepted because the people were unable to do any better than that. So at least keep it as eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and not to, 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 to punish someone even beyond what they did. Okay? So, so, but in the New Testament and through the work of the Holy Spirit, this new commandment that God gives is really the original commandment, which is the commandment of love. But it was something that the people could not practice. Okay? So here, St. John is saying, this is the commandment that Christ gave, is the commandment of love, and I'm not giving you anything new. What is it that you have received? What is it that you have been given? This is what I'm calling you for. I'm not telling you to do something beyond what, what we told you before. Follow the commandment, right? Um, the commandment uh, that we love one another. This is love. So he is defining love. What do, you, what do we mean by it? That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So this is when we say, what does it mean to love God? To love God means that we walk according to his commandments. This is how the scripture defines what does it mean to love God. That is what it means to love God. Right? Sometimes we, or people might say that they love God, but then they live away from him. They don't live according to his commandments. They love God, but they don't want to go to church. They love God, but they don't want to forgive their enemies. They love God, but they want to live in sexual sin. But we love God. What do we mean when people, like when people say that? What is it they mean? Maybe they mean 
they have like an emotional connection with God. Maybe they, s they mean that I feel like God has done many good things in my life. Maybe it means that like um, I, I believe in God, you know, or I, maybe it means I pray. There are many things that people might say uh, to say that they love God. But the definition here of loving God is not an emotional attachment. It's not just that I pray. It's not just that I practice some spiritual practice. Loving God means that we walk according to his commandments. We try as much as we can to walk according to his commandments. So we set his commandments as like our goal, that we want to walk in them. And when we fall short of them, we repent because we have not done according to the measure of love that God is calling us for. This is what it means to love God, okay? That we should walk in these things. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Okay, so this directly um, addressing the false teaching. There are many deceivers. There are many false teachers that have gone into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, like the docetists that we mentioned at the beginning. They believe that the body of Christ was just an illusion. He was an apparition. He was only spirit, and he had no body. And so he is referring to the people who teach this as deceivers and antichrists. Okay? Um, in 1 John chapter 2, he says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Also in 1 John chapter 4, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Okay? So when we use the term antichrist, sometimes the word antichrist is used to refer to a specific person who is to come. Sometimes the word antichrist is used to refer to the spirit of the antichrist, the spirit of rebellion, the spirit of deception. And he says what well, it is already in the world, right? It is already in the world, even at the time of the writing of this epistle, it is already in the world because the spirit of deception is already in the world because the devil is, is continuing to tempt people and deceive people and lead people into sin and lead people astray even up until that time, even, till that, even at that time. So the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world. Apart from the docetism and the Gnosticism, okay, um, anyone who twists the truth of the gospel is also an Antichrist. Someone who takes the message of the gospel, which is set for our salvation, and twists it into something that is not, this is also the spirit of the Antichrist. Meaning, there are people who believe that Jesus Christ lived, but he was a good moral teacher. You know, and that, that was, that was he, he was a philosopher. He, he lived on the earth, he was a philosopher, he taught morals and ethics and a lot of good things, and he, he, he was very loving and kind and served the poor and did all these things, but he was just a human being. This is also the spirit of the Antichrist. This is denying that the Lord Jesus Christ was both divine and human, 
at the same time. Okay? So anything that contradicts the gospel message, this is coming from the spirit of the Antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. So St. John is warning these people. It's like, all of you have accepted the truth, and you were baptized, and you entered into the church, and you began this journey of salvation uh, joyfully. Okay, Look to yourselves now. Do not depart from the things you were taught. Do not turn your back on the things you have accepted and believed by the mouths of the apostles themselves and begin to accept the world's philosophy. Maybe today the world's philosophy is very different than the world's philosophy at that time. You know, the kind of things that people discuss at the time with did Jesus Christ come in the flesh or not, that's typically not what the world discusses today, right? The world discusses all kinds of things, right? And many of those things lead a person away from God, okay? And so this is what he's saying to us. Look to yourselves that you do not lose those things which we, you worked for. Look, you know, look to yourselves that you do not lose the spiritual practices you have developed. Look to yourselves that you do not give up the, the gains you have made. You know, maybe like in the Holy 50 Days, this is a good time that we would hear this because maybe a lot of the things that we had kind of grown in during the Great Fast, we find that they kind of fall off in the Holy 50 Days. Or the, the very structured, you know, system that we had developed for ourselves in the Great Fast, the prayer rule we were trying to follow in the Great Fast, you know, the, the, the ascetic practices that we followed in the Great Fast that helped us to have self-control and to keep ourselves from sin. You know, maybe now in the Holy 50 Days, we begin to lose those things that we worked for. Exactly like what St. John is saying. He's saying, do not allow this to happen so that you will receive a full reward, right? Not just a partial reward, that you will receive the full reward. Persevere till the end and do not allow yourselves to be deceived so that everything you have worked for and everything you have accepted is not in vain. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, St. Paul says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. He said, I wanted to know your status, the Church of the Thessalonians, because I wanted to see whether you were still in the faith after the preaching we have preached to you, or if all of our work was in vain because you turned your back on the preaching, you turned your back on the truth. So we should always be alert um, lest we are led astray. And this is true of new believers. This is true of catechumens. This is true of even the most kind of experienced and elderly Christians. All of us can fall all of us are liable and so to be deceived. Whoever transgress and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So he's saying, if you do not have, if you do not believe in the Son, you know, like the, these, these false teachers, they were saying about Christ, that he was not a real human, that he was not a real person, okay? So here what he's saying, if whoever transgresses 
and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ. If you do not believe that Christ truly came in the flesh in incarnation, all right, you do not have God at all. Not to say that, well, yeah, I can still believe in God, God the Father, and still have all these benefits while at the same time denying Christ. He's saying, no, only he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. In 1 John chapter 2, he says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Okay, why? Because Christ is the image of, of the Father. Christ reveals the Father to us. Christ is the one who made the Father known to us. So if we reject what Christ says about the Father, or we reject Christ himself, right, then how is it that we are in union with the Father if we are not in union with Christ? Our union with the Father comes through the union that we have in Christ. So again, St. John, he is asserting that the Father and the Son are one, and if you deny one of them, you have neither of them. Okay, And if you accept Christ, then you have both Christ and the Father, and you are abiding in both. So here, this abiding in this doctrine of Christ, believing in the, the identity, the person of Jesus Christ, and living according to his commandments and teachings, right, through, um, through obedience and submission, this is how we discover the reality of God at a deep level. Some people, some Christians will spend their entire life reading books, and about God and about religion at the level of the mind only. And what they know about the faith is the facts, is the information. It is only when we put into practice these things, when we submit our will. It's one thing to know that God asks us to submit our will. It's one thing to know all of the parables and the stories and the history and the prophecies and all these things and the church fathers and... I can know all these things, but if I do not submit myself to them, if I do not, you know, surrender my will to God and allow him to be my director, not just my object of observation. Sometimes we look at God as through a microscope to observe him, to understand him, to dissect him. And we learn a lot of things, but that is not the spirit by which we will enter into a deep relationship with God is simply to dissect him and to know him in that way. Those who know God the deepest way are not necessarily the ones who have read the most books, are not necessarily the ones who have, you know, uh, you know, done, done, done what, you know, maybe we would consider to be scholarly work, are those people who just surrender to God. I'm going to read for you a very nice verse. What is this? This is in Ecclesiastes tw uh, 12. The last chapter of Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes 12.12. 12. So this is King Solomon. He says what? He says, And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. We live in a, in a culture and in a time where knowledge is idolized. You know, where the more you know, the stronger you are, the more authority you have, the more power you have, the more respect you command, simply from knowledge. Because you can stand and give a lecture about things and people are in awe at your knowledge. And this applies to secular as well as religious. 
But here, King Solomon he is saying what? Of making many books, there is no end. You want to study, 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 study. He says, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Actually, you know, in God's mercy, he did not allow Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of knowledge. Not right away. Maybe eventually he was going to allow them to. But he understood from the very beginning, he did not keep the tree of knowledge away from Adam and Eve because he was trying to deny them a blessing, but because it could be damaging to them. Because they had yet to experience God in a real way. Right? When we gain so much knowledge without faith, without surrendering, without practicing, our relationship with God is not really a relationship. It is more about, again, observing God under a microscope. What are the facts and the information that I learn about him? I don't deal with him as a person. I don't deal with him as a person with whom I can communicate. I don't deal with him as a person that I trust even when it doesn't make sense to me. And I can submit my will to him even when it doesn't make sense to me. I don't deal with him as a person who I believe is arranging and organizing my life for good even when I can't notice it or see it. No, instead I deal with him as knowledge and information. And this is why King Solomon made, you know, said this. He said, of making many books, there is no end. You want to write down all the knowledge of God? You can spend your whole life writing knowledge of God, and you will never write it all. Okay? And much study is wearisome. This does not mean that we shouldn't read. This does not mean that we shouldn't grow in knowledge. But it means that before I even begin to grow in knowledge of God, I have to grow in faith. I have to be willing to say, okay, I'm going to read the Bible, and whatever I find in there, I'm going to practice it. I'm not just going to read the Bible because I want to know the Bible. I'm not just going to read it because it's interesting or because I want to learn the faith or because I want to teach a Sunday school class about it or because I want to tell somebody about it or because I just want to feel like I'm literate in the Bible. No, I'm going to read it, and whatever it is I find in there, I'm going to practice it. And if I read with that spirit, because again, he says, what, the, what is man's all to fear God and keep his commandments? If I read with that spirit, then I will see the mysteries of God. And I will understand the mysteries of God. And I will experience God on such a deep level that cannot be described by knowledge or written in a book. But if all I focus on is just the mental, just the intellectual, the academic aspect of learning the things of God, I won't even know what I'm missing. right? And actually, maybe all of that understanding will drive us mad. Because we will have facts and information without really having a relationship with the God whom these facts describe. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. Right, so now he's saying, how do we practically protect ourselves from these false doctrines that are everywhere around us? Right? We sometimes, because we know that as Christians we should be kind and gentle and nice and, you know, we... That's how we kind of describe ourselves of how we're supposed to be, okay? We sometimes allow ourselves, for the sake of not offending, to flirt with what is damaging to us. Or people who bring some damaging doctrine or idea or influence. 
And maybe we think to ourselves, well, I have to be kind, I have to be gentle, I have to be loving, I have to be this and this. And so I will allow myself to continue in being in such a relationship or a friendship with those who could be damaging. So here he's saying to the church, you want to protect yourself from false teachers? You want to protect yourself from false doctrine? If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. Do not even greet that person. Reject that person completely. Where are the voices of the people saying, well, no, it's wrong to, greet, to reject someone. It's wrong not to greet someone. It's wrong not to be nice to someone. It says here something about what is the, what is the damage that is going to happen to me and to the church as a whole as a result of interacting with such a person. Do not grant that person an opportunity to influence you okay and so the early church they made this very clear at those times there would be like these itinerant preachers like these traveling preachers or apostles teachers and they would go traveling from place to place teaching the word of god and so the churches whenever those people would come and visit uh, they would support them. They would give them a place to stay. They would give them food. They would give them their needs because they saw them as being coming from God and, and teaching the word of God. Okay, And so the churches would support like these missionaries. So St. John saying, if these people come to you who are teaching this false doctrine, do not grant them this. Do not allow them to stay with you. Do not greet them. Do not support them. Do not give them money. Do not give them food. Do not support this mission, right? This has nothing to do with the individual. Do not support this mission that they are on seeking to deceive the church, okay? This is what St. Athanasius says. If someone comes to you with correct doctrines, accept him as a brother and greet him. However, if someone pretends that he knows the true faith, but in the same time, he is in fellowship with others who are against the correct faith. Advise him to forsake that fellowship. If he accepts, then treat him as a brother. If he does not accept your advice, then avoid him. You know, make an effort to correct this person. But if he rejects this, then avoid him altogether. The Didache, which was... Um, uh, uh, an early church document that described like the commandments of the church. He says this, it says, and concerning the apostles and prophets, act thus according to the ordinance of the gospel. Let every apostle who comes to you be received as the Lord, but let him not stay more than one day, or if need be, a second as well. But if he stay three days, he is a false prophet. And when an apostle goes forth, let him accept nothing but bread till he reach his night's lodging. And if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. So what is he saying? He's saying if he was really a, a missionary, then his goal is he's going to come to a specific place. He's going to preach what he's going to preach. And then he's going to stay for a short time and move on. But if he's just kind of abusing your hospitality by staying there for a long time, okay, um, or he is seeking money, then he is a false prophet. He is a false teacher. One of the ways in the early church that they would identify who would be a, a real teacher and a false teacher. Okay, So again, we also should not 
associate with people who are bringing these false doctrines. There is a difference between a person who is completely outside the church, right? We, we obviously, in our society, people have all kinds of ideas. There's a difference between a person who just is outside of the church versus a person who is inside the church who is trying to preach their own message or taking the word of God and perverting it or twisting it, right? Because these false teachers, they were presenting themselves as being authentic, right? Coming from God and teaching the truth. So it was much easier for people to be deceived by them rather than just random people who from other faiths or whatnot that, yeah, we would hear whatever they say, but we would just not accept it because we are not deceived by them, okay? So number one, we should not associate with anyone that is actively trying to convert us to another religion or confuse us in our faith. If there is someone who is actively trying to convert me to another religion, I should not, I should not uh, interact with them. If someone is trying to confuse us in our faith or we are feeling confused in our faith because of some comments they make or whatnot, then we should avoid this person. We should go and try to find answers to what they say so that we don't develop doubt in us, but we should also avoid this person because if my faith is not strong enough and it's wavering at the conversations that I'm having with such a person, I should not continue my relationship with this person, okay? Um, also, we should not associate with anyone who is claiming to be Christian but preaches the wrong faith about Christ. This is exactly what St. John is saying. You know, how if someone is denying that Christ came in the flesh, but they're calling themselves Christians, right? They're saying about themselves that they're Christians, but they deny that Christ came in the flesh. Do not associate with them. If someone is teaching some wrong doctrine, while they are considering themselves Christians. And like what Pope Athanasius said, we try to correct them, and they refuse to be corrected, then we do not approach them, we do not greet them, we do not associate with them anymore. Second Peter chapter 2, he says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who, brought, who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Okay, so... So again, we have to be careful. We should not just keep the door wide open for the sake of love and compassion and kindness and and and, and not because we don't want to offend anybody without discernment and without discrimination. No, it is okay not to be friends with everyone. It is okay to 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 take a step back from the people who confuse us, who harm us, who who are consistently preaching against what we believe, lest we ourselves fall. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Because if you greet him, and if you accept him, then you are essentially enabling him to continue to do what he is doing. And so even if you personally are not affected by him, what actions is it that I take that is going to help this person to continue to spread this deception and lie and false, false, like falsehood to others? And this is what St. John is saying. Okay, If he has a false doctrine, then we should not make him feel welcome. Because he's going to hurt someone. There's someone who's going to be affected by this. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. So here he's concluding the epistle. And like any good father, he is not content simply to um, write a letter. 
he wants to see them in person and interact with them in person. Um, and so he's telling them, I'm coming. I hope to come to you and speak to you face to face. This is also why the letter is short, right? It's only one chapter. It's only 13 verses, the whole letter, because he is telling them, I'm planning to come to you and we'll have a further conversation about this, right? And uh, it's, it's, it, he did not try to include everything in this letter because he is planning to see them. Also, this concept of having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink. This is what is explaining holy tradition. Right? When we speak about holy tradition, saying these apostles, the, 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 what they communicated to their flock was not only in the form of letters. You know, how much is it that they said without writing? How much is it that they said without writing? And are we saying that only the things that St. Jo John said that was written in these 13 verses, that only all th those things are the only things that are beneficial and edifying to the church? Or is everything that he said to them verbally after this, when he went and visited them, are those things equally edifying and from the Holy Spirit? Right? So, so this is what, how we understand the Holy Tradition. The idea that the only thing that applies to Christianity is what's written in the Bible, this is not true. Because the people who wrote the Bible said a lot of other stuff, right, that wasn't necessarily recorded in the Bible doesn't mean that those things are of no value or we just discard them. No. The same John who, who said this visited them and probably expounded on all of this and said all kinds of other things that is not recorded, right? And so here we see the love that he had for his people. And then finally, the last verse that we mentioned at the beginning, the children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Okay, so again, the elect sister is a sister church most likely, right? The si sister church, the children of the sister, the congregation of your sister, of your sister church, greet you. Just like St. Paul also, when he would end his letters and he would speak about how like the people from one place are greeting the people from another place and so on. Again, if you interpreted this as being written to a specific person, to a specific woman, then he is saying what? Your nieces and nephews are greeting you. Okay, which is probably not. Right. It's, pro it's probably not. That's what he was saying. He was saying that there is a church that is greeting them. The congregation is greeting them. OK. Any final comments or questions before we conclude? Yes. Uh, so a few verses before you were speaking about, well, the verses were speaking about disassociating ourselves from those who teach falsehood. Right, uh, and then you referenced the quote from Saint Athanasius, who said that we should correct those, and if, we, if they don't, we should try to. And if they don't receive the correction, you again disassociate yourself. So, I I don't know like that that the correction bit. I went through I went through a, a phase early in in my coming into the church, um, where I would correct people a lot. You know, he's like, yeah, don't do this, or or I tried to, you know, elaborately say say that, uh, and then I found that that's it's not sufficient, and that that Christ commands us, or it tells us that you know you can't pick out the splinter or in your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own eye, uh, and so I received that, and now I'm sort of in the situation where even if someone preached something 
false, whether to me or to you know people within the church around me, I might stay silent because I, I tend to not just listen and hear. But then I don't have, I don't know when to speak up. When is the right moment to speak up? Because you know there's a fear that, well, what if I'm going to be judgmental or what if I'm correcting when you know I myself am so so feeble in my faith. So there's a difference between correcting a doctrine versus correcting a, a, a personal, like like a, a like a moral issue. Like if I see someone losing their temper, and I can go to them, it's like you shouldn't lose your temper. It's wrong to lose your temper like that. You know. Okay, yeah, maybe maybe it's wrong to lose your temper, but maybe I've also lost my temper, and I have to be wise in the way that I'm going to try to correct the person, lest I completely ignore my own sins, and I'm just focusing on the sins of others, okay? But when we're talking about something doctrinal, right, the doctrine is based on our common faith and belief. So if I see that somebody is teaching something that is incorrect, then I have to take some kind of action. It doesn't necessarily have to be instant on the spot because sometimes instant on the spot, uh, I might not make the right decision. But I say, okay, somebody said something. I haven't heard this before or I've heard it differently before. Let me go after this lecture is done or whatever and let me go try to research it a little bit or let me go ask about it, you know, and, and, and see, okay, is my understanding right? Let me try to remember what exactly that person said. Maybe I misunderstood. Take some, uh, make some effort to try to come to some kind of conclusion about it. And if after that effort you find that, no, in fact, that person did teach something that was not right, then you should approach that person. And you're not trying to say, I'm better than you, I'm a better teacher than you, like I'm, you know, how dare you do this? No, you're saying, you know, I, I heard you say this, which kind of got me thinking because I had heard such and such. And so I went and did this research, just wanted to share it with you, okay? And then at that point, it's up to that person to kind of either accept that um, or not, you know, or if they realize that they did say something wrong to like accept it with humility, or maybe they find like, no, that's not what I meant, or however that conversation is gonna go. But like our, what we are trying to do is to maintain the correct doctrine. And it's okay if, if you know, it, it, like people have done it with me. I say something, it turned out not to be true, and they talk to me about it. You know, <laughs> one time somebody sent to Sayyidna something that I said, and Sayyidna contacted me about it. And that's okay, right? Because we care about the truth. And there's a lot of stuff to know, right? There's a lot of information, like there's a lot of things in our faith that we, we believe, and so it's easy to accidentally say something that shouldn't be so. Also, the way you treat someone who is intentionally teaching something contrary to the faith is not the same way you treat someone who just made a mistake or was unaware of something. You know, like if, I, if I'm giving, I'm talking a lot, I give Bible studies, I give whatever, and I say something thinking that it's true, and I, I don't, but it's not because I'm necessarily trying to teach my own doctrine. It's just because I, I, mis I made a mistake or I was ignorant of something. The way you would treat that situation is not the same way that you would treat someone who knows that the church doesn't believe a certain thing, but I believe a certain, a different thing, and I'm so I'm wanting to subvert the church teaching by injecting my own philosophy or teaching into the church. That's a completely different thing altogether, because there is an element of malice in that. It's not just it's not just a mistake, 
And so for such a person, they already know what they are doing is wrong. And so here when St. John is saying, do not associate with this person. He's not saying don't associate with someone who makes a mistake. He's saying don't associate with someone who has put it in their mind that this is what they have chosen to teach, even though it is contrary to what the church believes. Okay? Anything else? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for every opportunity that you give us, O Lord, to come before you in repentance. We thank you, O Lord, for reminding us of the power of the resurrection that you have accomplished for us and the way you revive us, O Lord, from death into life. We ask, O God, that you fill us with the truth and you enlighten our minds to know always what is true and right, not just our minds, but our hearts and our spirits, so that we would live, O Lord, a life uh, of reverence to you that would fear you and keep your commandments, O Lord. Thank you, O Lord, for your mercy. Forgive us our sins and grant us, O Lord, to grow in faith and to stay away from the deceptions of the enemy. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.